Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everyone. This is another Backer Rewards episode. Greetings, Robin. This is Greg from Denver, Colorado. Uh, first question. One of the things I've most enjoyed about this podcast is the tone. I don't just mean the timbre of your speaking voice, though that is singularly pleasant, but you, you approach the Romans and their neighbors with respect. Could you talk a little bit about how you uh, go at discussing people from a culture that is so alien to the one in which we find ourselves? Second question. Um, because of the source materials and the limitations on those, we've had a great deal of information about matters of state. We've had some information about ecclesiastical matters and about the deems. I was wondering if you could discuss some of the other institutions that had a pervasive influence in society in Romania. Third question. We've learned quite a bit about the fates that might befall traitors. I'm curious about what might happen to an ordinary Roman citizen who got involved in other kinds of more mundane and tawdry offenses that aren't uh, directly impugning the imperial dignity of uh, the, the Vasilevs. Uh, things like uh, theft or brawling, uh, whoremongering or buggery. Thank you, Greg, for your support and for the questions. One of the many things I really liked about the history of Rome was the tone that Mike Duncan used. I felt that he managed to find the right balance between feeding that part of me that wanted to be on Team Rome and see them succeed, and the other part that wanted historical accuracy. He found a way to keep it real and keep me emotionally engaged. And that's how I've approached the history of Byzantium. I very much wanted to bring the drama to life. I wanted to talk about Heraclius defeating the Persians or Justinian II reclaiming his throne, but I also didn't want to be patronizing. Uh, most famous historical tales are too good to be true. They are simplified versions of complex historical events. So I've tried to get the best of both worlds, to tell you the most entertaining story possible, and then backtrack and fill in the blanks. Uh, this was obviously literally my approach uh, recently with two episodes about Constantinople. I tried to bring you some of the majesty and mystery in one episode and then pull back the curtain in the next. The same goes for Romania's enemies. Uh, naturally, I present them as the fearsome threat that they were in the eyes of the Byzantines, but I also try to take time out to give their perspective on things. I always hope to be respectful. The trickiest area I've had to deal with is religious belief. 
the history of Christianity and Islam in particular are very complicated and emotional subjects. My approach has always been to focus on human nature, which I don't think has changed across the thousands of years that we're traversing. And this means that we should expect to see violence, corruption and manipulation in the sphere of religion, just as we expect it in all other aspects of Byzantine life. But at the same time, we need to acknowledge that human beings have a need for spiritual fulfillment. We have a need to feel part of something bigger than ourselves, and therefore religious belief and and faith in things unseen is not only a natural part of Roman life, but remains with us today. Even for those who don't subscribe to one of the major faiths, there are still ideas and institutions which we place a huge amount of faith in when perhaps we shouldn't. But we all need to go to bed safe in the knowledge that the sky won't fall on us, and I hope that comes across, that I see Byzantine faith just like our own, entirely normal and rational. Question two was about Byzantine institutions, and I'd say the majority of these were ticked off by Greg under the headings of state, church, and deems. Obviously, you have the imperial government and the bureaucracy, both in the capital and in the provinces. You have the court with all its titles and office holders. You have the tax collectors, the messengers, the porters, and all other government workers. Uh, then you have the army, the tachmata and the themes, the navy, the imperial guards units. Uh, then there is the church with the patriarchate and the bishops and the clergy. Uh, and then you have the monasteries. And it's probably worth saying that there was a good deal of variety within the monastic world. Some were well connected to their local ecclesiastical establishment and performed services for the community. Others were just like retirement homes for wealthy men that would eventually run out of funding and be closed down. Some, like the, the monasteries on Mount Athos, were institutions in their own right. They aggressively expanded their financial base, kept meticulous records, and lobbied the court to protect their interests, and, of course, survived the fall of the empire itself. And then you have the deems. They were once genuine racing stables who competed with one another on the track, uh, but by 1025 they were part of the court apparatus, taking part in ceremonial and organising entertainments, but no longer very competitively. Uh, at the capital, many workers' guilds were certainly institutions. Uh, they organised and regulated the professional life of about two dozen different occupations, and alongside them were the various charitable houses, the homes for the poor, aged, sick, and so on. Uh, these existed outside Constantinople as well, um, but each would need a large estate or imperial funding to uh, keep its activities going. Uh, and then there are the courts of law and the law schools. Um, anyone governing a, a province or a, an area, a theme, um, 
whether they were a stratikos or, or an official, were expected to preside over local legal cases. And uh, these generals and bureaucrats might not have any legal training, and so they were usually supplied with an expert to assist them. So both courts and law schools ran um, throughout Byzantine history. Beyond those, I think we're into areas where I'm not aware of specific organized structures, uh, but things which were so necessary to life that the skills were passed from one generation to the next without the need for oversight. Um, so you have dock workers or the maintenance of a port in the provinces. Um, you have the organization of village meetings to decide communal problems. And then a host of professions, doctors, teachers, artists, engineers, and musicians, all existed for millennia, um, but outside of the capital I'm not aware of much institutional organization. And then, thinking outside the box, and using Greg's words, um, pervasive influence, what about the institution of marriage? Um, obviously the family unit was the most universal institution in the lives of most people. Uh, slavery was an institution. Uh, patronage as a way of connecting the rich and poor. What about the empire itself as a concept, something worth keeping together and focusing loyalty and, and just um, being second nature to, to a, a farmer who might rarely deal with the government but accept that uh, it was the natural institution to govern his land. I think I'll leave it there for now. Our third question concerned legal punishments for everyday crimes. As we just touched on, the quality of justice in Byzantium was uneven. If you lived in the wilds of Cappadocia, then your local judge might be a tough, unsympathetic military commander. If you lived in downtown Constantinople, it might be a bookish letter-of-the-law jurist. Elsewhere, you might possibly find that your judge was also your landlord. And remember that there is no police force in Byzantium. If you wake up and find someone has stolen your horse, but you don't know who did it, then you're stuck. The only way someone is convicted of a crime is if the victim brings the case to court. So you had to know who your assailant was to bring them to justice. So in the courtroom, let's say you and your neighbour have a quarrel. You say he stole your horse. He says, no, no, it's my horse. The judge in the case will make up his decision however he sees fit. Yes, he has a legal expert to guide him, but the sources imply that in many cases judges would use common sense or local custom rather than following a rule book. Those with access to the many imperial law books might consult them, but it seems that rarely did they simply read out the law and pass a sentence. Always the judge's opinion counted for more, um, with all the potential good and bad consequences that that might involve. Greg gives four specific examples of, of crimes, so let's deal with them in turn. Theft as you might expect, was common across Byzantium. Uh, pickpockets in the city and uh, those who raided barns in the countryside and stole farm equipment. 
Um, and then you have opportunists like grave robbers or those who ransacked uh, ships that ran aground, um, all the way up to organized bands of brigands um, who might uh, hijack you on the road. The severity of the theft and the level of violence involved would usually determine the sentence for someone captured uh, or caught in the act. A common thief might be flogged for his misdemeanors. A serial offender might have a hand cut off, and the brigand would be likely to face uh, public execution or even public torture. The social status of the person was also very relevant to sentencing. The class-conscious judge would be lenient on a fellow member of the elite. If convicted of a serious crime, um, someone like that would suffer severe financial penalties, and maybe even lose their title, but they weren't going to be paraded through the streets for an everyday offence. For those who feared they would not receive a fair trial in the civil courts, the church offered an alternative route. Keen to show its authority and mercy, the church exercised its right to grant asylum to the guilty. So if you came forward and confessed your crimes, then it was possible to be given a far kinder sentence by an ecclesiastical court. The church believed in putting men through penance in an attempt to change their ways, This might involve months or years of good behaviour under supervision. Strict fasts, hours of prayer, almsgiving, and so on. Next on Greg's list was brawling, which in itself was probably not a crime. Only when someone was badly injured or property was damaged did this become a criminal matter. In the case of homicide, Byzantine judges tended to focus on the motives of those accused. If a fistfight led to accidental death, the sentence might be less harsh, whereas those seen brandishing deadly weapons could be sentenced to death even if they hadn't actually killed someone in the commotion. Those committing a crime while drunk might be temporarily exiled rather than permanently punished, Willful murder, though, was a capital crime, as were treason, desertion, heresy, and sexual deviation. Again, the class of the accused would come into it. A lowlife with no advocates might suffer public execution to set an example, while blinding, mutilation, or amputation were all alternatives for the creative judge. A death sentence might also be commuted to a life of hard labour, Uh, possibly in a mine. In the case of murder, the church would offer some men the chance to go into exile and spend the rest of their days at a monastery. For men of good name, this was in essence the loss of their life because they would forfeit their title, property and rights. In these cases, their estates might be divided into thirds, a third being left to their family, a third given to the victim's family, and a third to the monastery that was to house him. Interestingly, the government would not allow the church to offer sanctuary to two types of criminal, traitors and defaulting taxpayers.
As we discussed in the recent episodes on women in the Roman world, prostitution was not illegal in Byzantium. Despite the church's condemnation, it remained a fact of life. Formal brothels existed along with back alleys or roadside inns. A free man consorting with a prostitute was usually beneath the interest of the law. Adultery itself was punishable by flogging or paying a fine, according to the law, um, but it would be rare for such cases to go to court. There was a list of uh, other sexual crimes punishable by extreme measures. Uh, Rape, incest, and other acts were meant to bring down mutilation, exile, or even death on the guilty. Uh, Naturally, it was hard to provide proof in these cases, and doubtless a, a tiny proportion of crimes actually made it to court. Which brings us to Greg's last quote-unquote crime. Today is not really the time to attempt to discuss all the issues surrounding homosexuality in Byzantium, but in general, the Byzantines followed the line of the Old Testament and declared homosexual relations to be wrong and punishable by death or castration. We hear of high-profile cases where this happened, and we also know that homosexual behavior went on regardless. The uh, rules and regulations of some of the monasteries and nunneries make specific reference to this as a problem and take action to limit temptation. In some cases, the church did offer penance for those who confessed to this particular sin, which is interesting given you might expect blanket condemnation. The law was more lenient on those aged 15 and under caught in the act. Uh, They might be flogged or sent to their local monastery to correct their behaviour. Sexuality and the law will both hopefully get more attention in future Byzantine stories. Thanks again to Greg for his support and thank you all for listening. 